1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. I'm reading from a common English Bible. Finally, all of you, be of one mind, sympathetic lovers of your fellow believers, compassionate and modest in your opinion of self. Don't pay back evil for evil or insult for insult. Instead, give blessing in return. You were called to do this so that you might inherit a blessing. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. First, I thought it was a joke. Pastor Todd texted me and said, would you preach on 1 Peter chapter 3? 1 Peter chapter 3, okay. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, be obedient to your husbands. Okay, why don't we throw in 1 Corinthians 14 and 2 Timothy. And 1 Timothy, second chapter. Women are not allowed to speak in church. I thought Pastor Todd was joking. I put a smiley emoji and said, ha ha. And then a couple of weeks ago when I heard Rebecca Hernandez preaching, she says, I open the verse, going to be 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. I go, oh, it's a sermon series on Peter. Pastor Todd was serious for once. So as he likes to say, we had the situation here. I tried to backpedal. You have to be respectful to your pastor. I said, okay, what would you like me to speak on? Of course, graciously, as Pastor Todd, he said, well, whatever you pick, whatever you want. I said, well, I'll, I'll read 1 Peter chapter 3, and I would start reading it. It started dawning on me that this letter, if it were an email, it would have my email address, Vadim at Advent Hope, in this address line. There's something in this text that he was able to see. I'm not talking about Pastor Todd. I'm talking about the author of 1 Peter. Over the horizon of time, to peek over 2,000 years, to look and to see that I need to receive this email today. 11 months ago, we moved to New York. We used to live in Loma Linda area. Those of you who know Loma Linda, it's, it's where all the women are strong, children are above the average, and all older people live over 100 years old. So if you want to live 100, move to Loma Linda. Well, it's a very different area than New York. It's not even a different planet. It's a different universe. When we, when we arrive here and you look around and, you, and, and I realize where New York is ahead of everyone else, is what sociologists and theologians have been telling us for the last 20 years. So that we're living in the post-Christian times. Post-Christian times, we get it, you know. We still have a point of reference, at least, that this is not like this. We don't want to hear from your Bible. But at least in the post-Christian times, at least you know what the Bible is. We live in the times right now. When I think of Christianity is reduced to one room at the mat, alongside with a display of musical instruments and um, the, uh, the Japanese fashion and the Asian wing, and, the, and of course, Van Gogh's uh, cypresses. If you haven't seen those, they're pretty amazing. 
But we become, the, the Bible is just an artifact of the past and Jesus, the best we can hope for that the Marvel or Disney is gonna make a featured movie about the superhero who could walk on the water, who can calm the storm and who can cook fish for breakfast even before it was caught. This is where we at in the non-Christian world, living around and realizing where do we go when the points and the reference that we're so used to, how do, we, how do we enter it? Because this is the, precisely the audience that First Peter has writing this email. Listening to Rebecca a couple of weeks ago, and Pastor Todd last week, I realized that maybe I'm not the only one. Maybe more than one person is, maybe someone of us also CC'd on that email. Either when I admit or not, and if you don't want to admit, you can also think maybe your address in BCC, but something to, something to pay attention today. How do we enter into non-Christian reality? Is that the problem? Whose problem it is, and I'm so glad Rebecca very gently and beautifully introduced, said the problem is, is not how or what, but with whom you're entering. It is Christ is the one who walks alone with you. And of course, last week, Pastor Todd said, it is the hope that gives us a chance. In the world that now replaces religion, replaces faith with this preoccupation, with self-care, with the navel gazing, when the focus of self becomes so ubiquitous, it is, it's all about this, this self-care, self-improvement, that comes something else, and the alternative becomes hope. So the subject line of that email, because I tried to send it, but before it comes back, you know, mail says, are you sure you want to send this email without the subject line? Have you received those? And you want to say, well, I guess I'm supposed to title this. So I wonder if... Uh, the author of 1 Peter was thinking, how would I title? And I don't know what the title is. They come out with the clever 1 Peter. But this particular chapter 3, I wonder if the title, how to be, or the entire letter would be how to be Christian in a non-Christian world. You enter with Christ. You enter with hope. In 2016, I um, became a pastor at Riverside Community Church. It was the first, I wonder if it was the second or third sermon. Of course, um, I, I had to say something that is positive, so I thought I'll preach about hope. And for 30 minutes, I was just gone. Maybe it was more than 30 minutes. But I was going about hope and hope this, how important hope is, and, and, and try my best to, to kind of convey this idea. After, after the sermon, uh, Chris, who is a brilliant um, business person, comes and says, very successful in his business, comes and says, Vadim, let me tell you, I've learned something from my mentor. Hope is not a business plan. What's your plan? And I stood, I was taken back, it, it came about, and I've, I gave a few answers, but of course it was very generic. And I thought, wow, hope needs the specificity. And this is what the letter of 1 Peter about. This is about that hope that very, very clearly specified. It's the action plan of moving forward or survive, if you will. But it's, he's not talking about survival. He's talking about thriving. 
And the challenge for us when we live and enter the non-Christian world is not how we survive, not how we make it. This is the mindset that we often have, how we can let's make it. No, how we thrive. Where to begin this? And this is I realized that I'm reading First Peter. I've read it a few times. I have a little bit of uh, theological education, so I've read it a long time ago. And um, I, I, I'm familiar with the text, but it is the pretext that now changes my mindset. And I start opening and say, it is written for me. It is in my inbox. And I click to open. Chapter 3. And it starts with the simple words. Do not return evil for evil. How do we do that? How do we survive? We've been trained, conditioned by culture. And it's in our system that we need to make things right. And then our idea of right is somehow it's always been a judgment. But I think now, realizing and thinking and reading this text, this, this, this very scary idea starts coming to mind. It doesn't appear that Christ is afraid of entering into non-Christian world. But I think the bigger concern for Jesus is, is when the Christians begin to lose sight of him. And I think this is a lot bigger problem that needs to be addressed first before we even start looking outward. It became very real to me one Sunday morning, 6 o'clock. What do you do in California at 6 o'clock in the morning outside? You put spandex on, and you go on a bike ride because it's scorching hot by 9. I was in my friend's house with four or five of us getting together to go for a ride, and as the sun just, just, just kind of licking the tops of the hills around Loma Linda or in Redlands, we saw somebody like a little shadow across the street by the neighbor's house at the front door, and it was, became clear that somebody was trying to steal shoes. What do I do as the person who fights for justice and righteousness? Of course, I try to run across the street to stop the crime. And you know, it's, it's, it, in itself, and, and this can be visually describing the whole awkwardness of that, and it was more on the spiritual level than the physical, but it looked like this. Because that's how you run in bicycle shoes. They don't bend. And I tried to get there, and a young man, I'll never forget his eyes, big blue eyes. And he looks at me, and he's trying to judge his, his right cheek is twitching and he's trying to judge. You know that look that he's trying to figure out either he's going to punch or run. And he's trying to figure, he looks at my shoes, probably thinks he has a chance that he can outrun me. He did not punch. Because behind me was my friend Corey. Corey is six foot seven. His biceps is the size of my thigh. 
with a big skull tattooed right on the hand that's picking up just enough to be noticeable under the spandex jersey. And I thought, now we're going to let him have it. I pulled out my phone to call the cops. We need, to, we need to justice here. We need to get this man, put him away, and we need to teach him a lesson not to steal shoes. Hey, man, I hear a chorus voice behind me. What shoe size do you wear? I might have a pair for you in the garage. Corey gave me his permission to tell this story. I just had a lunch with him two weeks ago. It's been maybe eight years since it happened. It's still as vivid the day in my memory because it was the worst and the best ride, bike ride in my life. It was the worst because I could not get over the embarrassment that I am a person who paid to be a Christian. I'm a pastor. And I completely failed in this simple thing because the first default mode of me was to judge and to punish. But Corey, my friend, Corey does not only wear proudly his skull on the arm, he wears a beard and an NRA membership card. But more than that, Corey hates organized religion. He has a particular issue and particular profound dislike with paid Christians, with pastors who didn't get up and hit people for money, as he says. Corey doesn't want to do anything with religiosity. He's, as one would call, a non-Christian, and proudly to be so. But Hori taught me a very important lesson that day. That the divide that we often create and the concern that we have of how to reach non-Christians perhaps should be secondary, if any at all. And to realize that it is Christians who lose the sight of Jesus that is more problematic today in the non-Christian world as ever before. To bless, to bless, to bless, you don't have to, what if, you don't need to go to judge, all of that can come later, but to bless as a first reaction to what we have. I thought of Corey when I read these words, don't pay back evil for evil or insult for insult, instead give blessing. In this cursed world, don't curse back, but bless. Bless. Before we get to blessings, I want to spend a little bit time, a little bit more time on cursing. Because it feels like we see more cursing in this world than blessings. And speaking of cursing, of course, the opening line of, of, of as I already mentioned, of chapter 3 is what? Remember it? See, men memorize that line, and women, for some reason, pretend they never heard of it. Wives, likewise, submit to your own... You're not too eager to repeat it. I hear you. It's problematic. Why do you think I thought Pastor Todd was joking? Because if you read later down, it says, for example... Sarah accepted her husband's authority. I thought Pastor Todd could preach that sermon. 
when she called him master. I can just see Sarah calling Pastor Todd master. This is as appalling to us as a gas station coffee. We live in the reality of the third decade of the 21st century. What do we do with a text like this? Yeah, later on it comes and says, well, husbands, likewise submit by living to your wife in the ways that honor her, knowing that she is, and that so far it's good, husbands submit to your wives, good. And then, and then 1 Peter 3 finishes, knowing that she's the weaker partner. And there's nothing we can do. We can't edit it. It's in the email. We can't just delete it. We have to read and do what to do with that. This is not the line from a feminist convention, as you can see. But we start reading that what is, what is the author is doing here with this? Because in the non-Christian world, in a world in which Christianity is boldly entering in, Inequality and inequity is the name of the game. It's how the entire social system is based. And the most important social unit family, the wives have no rights. The wives are disposable things. And even the worst than wives is the children. So you don't pay attention to wives. Wives are nobodies. That even worse so, legally, female could not even testify in court. So when First Peter unveils it, it says you have to address the cultural reality, this cursed culture that ignores that. But this, all of a sudden, we see this balancing of the right, and it says wives and husbands, can we overcome the curse of inequality? Can we look and realize that is done and said this way because women simply had no rights. That becomes from our focus text today that the main point that's being made, and we can look at it later, and if you want, I can see afterwards we can have a big theological discussion about equality of rights, how scripturally we have no evidence in any kind of way that women are inferior. Do not pay back evil for evil and self for inside. Instead, bless in return. And this word submission that says wives submit, husbands submit, this is the practical implementation. This is embodiment of the reality of blessing. Submission is not giving up self. Submission is recognizing and seeking interest of the other or blessing the other without seeking any self-interest. And all of a sudden the words bless and submit become synonymous. What do we think of our relationships? What do we think of relationships with our families and our communities and our country and our world that submit does not mean to lose yourself but to bless the other, to empower the other. This idea of blessing, not only as an impulsive response, but a definitive attitude. The way of being as a habitual response to challenges becomes very clear. This is something you face the adversity. Verse 8, now the author says, 
not just their husbands and wives. Now, who is he addressing? Everyone succeeds on this one. All of you. All of you. All of you think and consider what it means to be a Christian in a non-Christian world. How to be a blessing in a cursed reality. And of course, this is not of his own invention. The reference, the clear biblical reference here, and if we had a little bit more time, we can actually take the Greek translation of the Psalm 34 in, in, in um, Greek version. Um, it's actually Psalm 33. If you read and we compare the wording that the author of 1 Peter um, is using word by word, quotation from Psalm 34. In fact, this is the largest quote from the Old Testament in the entire email. Psalm 34. You just can cl click on that hyperlink in the letter. Do you love life? Do you relish the chance to enjoy good things? That you must keep your tongue from evil and keep your lips from speaking lies. Turn away from evil. Do good. Do good. Seek peace and go after it. The Lord's eyes watch the righteous, his ears listen to their cries for help, but the Lord's face is set against those who do evil, to eliminate when the memory of them from the earth. This is the quote that First Peter 3 uses, Psalm 34. But what's remarkable, and I think it is absolutely stunning, you can see how the mindset, how this development of this idea, how to enter this world, what do we bring into the world that his very, very vague idea of Christianity is. The beginning of Psalm 34, the first verse, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be my mouth. David acknowledges the reality of evil in a cursed world, but he also says that it is the learning, acknowledging, and becoming, and living as a blessing become the alternative, the way we subvert the cursed world. From my accent, you can tell that I was not born in America. If you look at my shirt, you can probably guess that I am from Ukraine but the color of my shirt today. You know that it points out to, to the very cursed world. My mom turned 76 last Thursday. Could not turn on the camera. I didn't want her to see my tears. The last three days, my hometown, Odessa, experienced the worst bombing for the last 500 days of war. My sister has a three-year-old. They're spending a lot of time in the bomb shelter. He, he doesn't want to go to um, daycare because it's very scary to run in the bomb shelter with all the other children who are crying scared. This is children of the war. This is the trauma. This is the curse because a power monger decided to unleash the war. For what? How do we deal with the curses? How do we approach this? 
I was thinking of my mom and her mom, my grandma. During the, my teenage years, I said teenage years. Usually in church, when you say teenage years, somebody says mercy. Teenage years. Ugh. I had to live with my grandma. I don't want to get into details, but she was gracious enough to accept. It was tumultuous times when the Soviet Union was still a communist country falling apart. We lost our past. There was no economy. Everything was in shambles. And we could not even know what the future was going to look like. But every time I would leave her apartment, she would find a way to get to the door. She would open and just crack open. And as I'm leaving, I caught her once. And then I start paying attention more and more than once. Every single time I was leaving the apartment, she would do this. So I would not notice. I hope it doesn't catch on the camera because I don't want you to send it to the... That Adventist pastor is doing the sign of the cross. Everything's in context. My grandma was not a very religious person who would go to church once a year, maybe. But she wanted to make sure that every time I'm out of the door, she would bless me with that. I said, Grandma, what are you doing? No, I didn't say it like that. I said, Grandma, what are you doing? <laughs> I was upset with her. What is this nonsense? But she continued every single time to say, you go. You go. Now it's has become one of the most powerful memories of my younger days. This is simple blessing from grandma. I've known the pastor who committed his life that every time he would drop his children at school, he blessed them with a simple blessing. You loved, be blessed, and be Jesus. 12 years. The simple blessing that you live and you send Jesus into this unknown world and you send Jesus with the person you love, a person you don't know, and you send part of yourself. That's how we address the unknown. I would go as far as to say that the act of blessing and wishing well unconditionally might be one of the most powerful th things to fight evil. Because blessing is inherently a gift that you don't expect anything in return. When we bless, we let it go. So I want to say, hold on a second. If we read this text carefully, eh, there's some questions about it. Because it almost sounds like 1 Peter 3, verses 9, second half, tells us, well, you want to be blessed? You need to be blessing others. It's tit per tat, right? And this is the nuances, and sometimes it helps to be able to see it in the original language. Because if we read this text 
in original Greek. That's not, that's one of the way to translate it. It's not the best of translations and not of the, I don't think, I haven't seen the English translation. If you know, maybe in Spanish or other languages, it translates better way. But that phrase that um, if, if you do this, you, you're meant to do this, does not refer to give blessings, but to refer to the first part. Do not do evil for evil and don't insult for insult. You're meant to do this, but you're not meant to do, to do this to deserve a blessing. Because you've already been blessed. Your blessing is the present reality. It's not the future. And if we have any doubts about it because of this link of this text, what helps us to understand and interpret it correctly is, again, going back to Psalm 34. Taste and see how good the Lord is now. The one who takes refuge in him is truly happy, present. You are present. The Lord's holy ones honor him because those who honor him don't like present tense, anything now. Even strong young lions go without getting hungry. But those who seek the Lord now, now lack no thing. The psalm is not talking about some future reality, some pie in the sky, some abstract thing. He said, no, if you are God's, you are blessed now. Pay attention not to miss that. Theologians emphasize that Psalm 34 talks about the present day not some distant future. And this is not a transactional text. This is not like if I, if I give enough blessings a day, I will be blessed. This is a transformational thing. Because if you deeply understand what it means to be blessed, you become a blessing. And I would go as far as to say that the text seems to suggest that you cannot bless unless you experience and know what blessing is. I know that Peter and Paul were in the same Bible study when they studied Psalm 34. Because we see these words almost verbatim. I know, it's, there's no way they did not discuss and talk. And you know, Peter and Paul were not exactly always on the good terms. But on this, they are dead together to understand the meaning of the blessing. Romans chapter 10, verse 14 and down, Paul writes, Bless people who harass you. Bless and don't curse them. Be happy with those who are happy and cry with those who are crying. Consider everyone as equal. Don't think that you are better than anyone else. Instead, associate with people who have no status. Don't think that you are so smart. Don't pay back anyone for their evil actions with evil actions, but show respect for what everyone else believes is good. Seems like we're culturally conditioned, losing the sight of Jesus to repay and to deal with the curses and the evil the same way. And sometimes it feels like the life is that this violent cage match that we just against everyone else. Or if, if, if we're adapting to the conventions of the society, it's not the violent cage match, but just as damaging passive-aggressive behavior. 
So our immediate reaction when something is done to us that not at our liking, it's either the finger goes up or a fake smile. But neither of those in the text. Because when you bless, you're not focusing on the self. We're so preoccupied with this self-improvement, self-conditioning, self-care. There's a huge, huge difference between self-care and care of the self. But the self-defense, this fighting back, I bet that will get a lot more traction if we talk about that than the second coming of Jesus. But what if our self-defense not based on violence or strength or pretentiousness. Whatever based on the simple fact that we are open to bless because we are the ones who experience the blessing. One of the most profound influences in my life as a human, as a pastor, as a Catholic priest, who happened to be also a professor of psychology, who taught as one of the most prestigious Ivy League universities at Yale and at Harvard. He was one of the sought-after professors and speakers around the world. One day, Henry Nouwen came into his office, and he realized that God is calling him to do something else. And he gives up this very lucrative career the popularity, gives up everything and becomes a sim simple priest at the daybreak community in Canada, the special space where people with the mental health issues are being cared for. And he spent the rest of his life until the day he died from a heart attack, caring for simple people. And he found the meaning and fulfillment of his life and simply blessing and giving blessings. And he describes this so beautiful, his very short, small book that changed my life in the name of Jesus. This is what he writes. It is remarkable how easy it is to bless others, to speak good things to and about them, to call forth their beauty and truth when you yourself are in touch with your own blessedness. The blessed one always blesses, and people want to be blessed. This is so apparent wherever you go. No one is brought to life through curses, gossip, accusations, or blaming. There's so much taking place around us all the time, and it calls forth only darkness, destruction, and death as the blessed ones. We can walk through this world and offer blessings. It doesn't require much effort. It flows naturally from our hearts when we hear within ourselves the voice calling us by name and blessing us. The darkness no longer distracts us. The voice that calls us the beloved will give us words to bless others and reveal to them that they are no longer less blessed than we. Blessing as a habit Blessing as an attitude, lifestyle, a lens through which we see the world. It seems like it changes the perspective, changes everything. And the lens of blessing 
It might be that exactly what we need to see and to enter into the non-Christian reality of our times. And that makes so much sense why we come when we gather on Zoom. Why are you here today? You're a blessing. We're here to bless one another with our presence. It doesn't require much. That's why we show up. That's why we sing, bless the Lord. That's why we worship, because we get into the habit and we practice the act of blessing. This is what the worship is. So we can take it with us. So our reaction, our default reaction is not going to be the cage match or the pretentiousness. And I strongly believe this is a Christ did exactly. When he was praised, he blessed. When he was cursed, he blessed. When he was crucified, what did he do? He blessed. He blessed, and his blessing eventually took down the evil of Roman Empire. How not to miss a blessing or an opportunity to bless? Well, we spent a few more weeks in 1 Peter. He unpacks it well. But for now, I guess for now the big question is, and we can almost paraphrase this famous Shakespearean line, to be or not to be, because for Christians it means what? To bless or not to bless. You loved Advent Hope. Be blessed and be Jesus.